for, and here the same service to state and nation, we shall soon see nationwide, votes for women, in our own country, at least, but whether we do or not, or until we do, women and citizenship are, as they have always been, closely linked together, in every community relation the homemaker is the good, or indifferent, or bad citizen, and in every home relation she is the citizen still, and, more than that, the mother of future citizens, in spite of the uneasy women who feel that the home offers insufficient scope for their intellectual powers, the executive ability required to run a home smoothly and well is of no mean order. This being a mother is a complicated business, as one mother of my acquaintance expresses it. Can we afford to have homemaking underrated as a vocation, to be avoided or entered into lightly, often with neither natural aptitude nor training to serve as guide to the complications? It would seem not. We must then consider guidance toward homemaking as a necessary part of a girl's education and as a possible solution of the home problems on every hand. We have thus far in this book concerned ourselves with making plain our ideal of girlhood and womanhood and with considering the problems which our girl and woman, when we have done our best to prepare her, will have to meet. We have thus far not concerned ourselves with the questions of how, when, and where the work of preparation is to be done. A clear vision of the end to be attained, not obscured by thought of the means used in reaching it, seems a necessity. From this we may pass on to careful, detailed consideration of agencies and methods. Knowing what we desire our girls to be, we may enlist all the forces which react upon girls to make them into what we desire. Footnotes, footnote 3, no studies of present-day conditions are available. The proportion spent for food, clothing, etc. will remain nearly the same. It is safe to multiply the above estimates by two to obtain the actual cost of living in the year 1919. Part I guiding girls toward the ideal, a vocational guide is one who helps other people to find themselves. Vocational guidance is the science of the self-discovery. Chapter V The educational agencies involved the three agencies most vitally concerned in this problem of woman making are necessarily the home, the church, and the school the home and the church because of their vital interest in the personal result, the school, because, whatever public opinion has demanded, schools have never been able to turn out merely educated human beings, but always boys and girls, prospective men and women, and so they must continue to do, nature reasserts itself with every coming generation, this being so, we must continue to, make women, if we desire to make homemaking women, the most economical way to accomplish this is to use the already existing machinery for making women of some sort. We cannot begin too soon, nor continue our efforts too faithfully. The school cannot leave the whole matter to the home, nor can the home safely assume that the domestic science course or courses will do all that is needed for the girl. Being a woman is a complex, many-sided business for which training must be brought and long continued. The teacher has perhaps scarcely realized her responsibilities or her opportunities in this matter, for years, and in fact until very recently, the whole tendency in education for girls has been toward a training which ignores sex and ultimate destiny. The teachers themselves were so trained and are therefore the less prepared to see the necessity for any special teaching along these lines. They may even resent any demand for specialized instruction for girls. Yet we are confronted by the fact that the majority of girls do marry, and that many of this majority are woefully lacking in the knowledge and training they should have, nor are these girls exclusively from the poor and ignorant classes. There is no question about the responsibility of the school in the matter, 
the state which trains for citizenship cannot logically ignore the necessity for training the mothers of future citizens. While I sympathize profoundly with the claim of woman for every opportunity which she can fill, says J. Stanley Hall in adolescence, and yield to none in appreciation of her ability. I insist that the cardinal defect in the woman's college is that it is based upon the assumption, implied and often expressed, if not almost universally acknowledged, that girls should primarily be trained to independence and self-support, and matrimony and motherhood, if it come, will take care of itself, or, as some even urge, is thus best provided for, this criticism, of existing educational conditions is quite as applicable to schools for younger girls as to those which Dr. Hall has in mind, there is no reason why both school and college may not fit girls for a broad and general fullness, for, independence and self-support, and at the same time give them the training for that which, with the majority already mentioned, comes to be the great work of their lives, through all the lower grades of school life, and to a certain extent through the whole course, the methods of instruction used will be largely indirect, the child will seldom be told, this is to teach you how to keep house, I can think of no field in which this indirect method will produce greater results than the one we are considering, illustration, Monteville School Garden, Portland, Oregon, where boys and girls raise vegetables for serving in the lunchroom. Here the science of growing things is taught as part of the training for citizenship illustration, photographed by Brown Bros. A model school home. One way of teaching children how to keep house is by means of the model home where they are given instruction in all the duties of the homemaker the teacher, in most cases, must begin her homemaking training by realizing that her own example is by the very nature of things opposed to the homemaking principle. The unmarried teacher being the rule in most of our schools, her first care, then, must be to counteract her own example. Her references to home life must be always of the most appreciative and even reverent sort. If, as is quite possible, she comes from unsatisfactory conditions in her own home, she must be doubly careful lest her prejudices be passed on to her pupils. She will find ways in which to let it be understood that her ideals of home life are not wanting although she has not as yet perhaps for some reason never will become a homemaker. I have sometimes thought that teachers, in their effort to impress children in more direct ways, lose sight of the great effect of their unconscious influence. After all, it is what the teacher does, rather than what she says, that impresses, and what she island regulates what she does. The teacher must, therefore, have the right attitude toward homemaking and domestic life. It may be of the greatest value in determining the force of her influence in this direction for the children to catch intimate little glimpses of her domestic accomplishments, of her sewing, or of her cooking, or of her quick knowledge and deft handling of emergency cases. The teacher whose influence is felt most and lasts longest is the one whose motherliness supplements her academic acquirements and supplies a sympathetic understanding of the child. Illustration, Canning Tomatoes at the Montevilla School. In such a class the mothers of future citizens are given training in one of the fundamental needs of the home scientific cooking with innate motherliness as a basis. The teacher must build up a careful understanding not only of child nature, but of man and woman nature as the developed product of child growth. She must be a student of the woman question as a vital problem, always recognizing that the whole social structure inevitably depends upon the status of woman in the world. She must face without flinching her responsibilities in sex matters. She may, or may not, be called upon to furnish sex instruction to the girls under her care. 
but no rules can free her from her moral responsibility in striving to keep the sex atmosphere clean and invigorating. The conspiracy of silence on these subjects is broken, and we must accept the fact that modesty does not require an assumed or a real ignorance of the most wonderful of nature's laws. The idea that celibacy is the aristocracy of the future is soundly based if the business of being a woman rests on a mystery so questionable that it cannot be frankly and truthfully explained by a girl's mother the moment her interest and curiosity seek satisfaction, and what the mother should tell, the teacher must know. Practical use of the teacher's carefully worked out theories will be made all along the line of the girls, and to a certain degree the boys. Education. The indirect teaching of the primary grades will give place in the higher grades to more direct dealing with the science, or, better, sciences, upon which homemaking rests. The classroom becomes a school of theory. The home stands in the equally vital position of a laboratory in which the girl sees the theory worked out and in time performs her own experiments. The finest teaching presupposes perfect cooperation between school and home. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. Mothers and daughters meeting on sewing day. Cooperation between the home and the school makes for the best teaching of domestic science the first duty of the mother, like that of the teacher, is to preserve always a right attitude toward home life. The girl who grows up in an ideal home will be likely to look forward to making such a home someday. Or, if the home is not in all respects ideal, the father or mother who nevertheless recognizes ideal homes as possible may show the girl directly or otherwise how to avoid the mischance of a less than perfect home. The prevalence of divorce places before young men and women sad examples of mismatting, of incompetent homemakers, of wrecked homes. We can scarcely estimate the blow struck at ideals of marriage in the minds of girls and boys by these vaunted failures. Nor can we even guess how many boys and girls are led to a cynical attitude toward all marriage by their daily suffering in families where parents have missed the real meaning of home. However practical we may become, therefore and we must be practical in this matter we must never overlook the need for parents to give home life an atmosphere of charm. No one else can take their place in doing this. Hence it is their first duty to make homemaking seem worthwhile. The home must take the lead also in giving the idea of homemaking as a definite and scientific profession. The school may teach the science, but unless the home shows practical application of the scientific principles, it would be much like teaching agriculture without showing results upon real soil. Skillful teachers recognize the home as a valuable adjunct to their school equipment and are able by wise cooperation to use it to its full value. The home, in its character of laboratory for the school of domestic theory, must possess certain qualifications, like all laboratories, it should be well equipped, this does not mean necessarily with expensive outfit, but with at least the best that means will allow, it implies that the home shall be recognized as a teaching institution quite as much as the school, like other laboratories, it must be a place of experiment, not merely a preserver of tradition, the efficient laboratory presupposes an informed and open-minded presiding genius, illustration, Courtesy of L.A. Alderman First Crop of Radishes and Lettuce at the Alameda Park School, Portland, Oregon, June, 1916. Even in the primary grades children may learn much about the science of growing things illustration, bringing exhibits to a school fair in Tacoma, Washington. Skillful teachers who recognize the home as a valuable adjunct to the school equipment encourage the children to make gardens at home the greatest service that the home can render in the cause of training girls for homemaking is probably close. Painstaking study of its own individual girl her likes, dislikes, aptitudes, and limitations, 
Home-mindedness shows itself nowhere so much as in the home, lack of home-mindedness shows there quite as much. The results of such study should throw great light upon the problem of the girl's future. Combined with the observations recorded by her teacher during year after year of the girl's school life, the study offers the strongest arguments for or against this or that career. Frequent and sympathetic conferences between parent and teacher become a necessity. There is then less likelihood of opposing counsel when the girl seeks guidance toward her life work. It is quite probable that, while the school undertakes to lay a general foundation for homemaking efficiency, the home, when it reaches the full measure of its power and responsibility, will be best fitted to help the girl to specialize in the direction most sweet to her individual power. It can, if it will, give the girl individual opportunities such as the mere fact of numbers forbids the school to give. The special work of the church in training the girl is necessarily that which has to do with her spiritual concept of life, the strengthening of her moral fiber. Here school, home, and church must each contribute its share. None of them can undertake alone so important and delicate a task. Any attempt to make arbitrary divisions in the work of these three agencies is bound to be at least a partial failure. Conditions differ so widely that we can only say of much of the work, at school or church or in the home or, better, that school and church and home in cooperation, each must supplement the efforts of the other, and where one fails, the other must take up the task, it really matters little where the work is done, provided that it is done, the ensuing chapters of this book are written in the hope that they may bring the vital problems of girl training and girl guidance home to both teacher and parent, and especially that they may convince both of the value of cooperation in the inspiring work of helping our daughters to make the most of their lives. Footnotes, Chapter VI Training the Little Child, Children are the home's highest product. That means at the outset that we have children because we believe in them, and that we train them, as the skilled workman shapes his wood and clay, to achieve the greatest result of which the human material is capable. A factory's output can be standardized, an engine's power can be measured, but he who trains a child can never fully know the mind he works with nor the result he attains. We do know, however, that if it is subject to certain influences, trained by certain laws, the chances are that this mind which we cannot fully know will react in a certain way. To attempt in a chapter to outline a system of training for children would be an attempt doomed to certain failure. Books are written on this subject, and the shelves of the child study and child training department in the libraries are rapidly filling. What I have in mind here is rather a single line of the child's development that which leads toward making him a full factor in the home life of which he forms a part. The boy or girl who fills successfully a place in the home of his childhood will be in a fair way to undertake successfully the greater task of founding a home of his own. In the days of infancy and early childhood, training for boys and girls may be more nearly identical than in later life. A large part of the differentiation in the work and play of little boys and girls would seem to be quite artificial. We give dolls to girls and drums to boys, but only because of some preconceived notion of our own. The girls will drum as loudly and the boys care for the baby quite as tenderly, until someone ridicules them and they learn to simulate a scorn for boys' things and girls' things which they do not really feel. Throughout this chapter, therefore, it is to be assumed that the training suggested is quite as applicable and quite as necessary for one sex as for the other. Young mothers sometimes ask the family doctor, when shall I begin to train the baby to eat at regular intervals, to go to sleep without rocking, in general to accept the plan of life we outline for him? The answer seldom varies, before he is 24 hours old, 
it is therefore evident that all the basic principles of living, whether physical or mental, must have their foundations far back in the child's young life. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros, helping with the housework. The boy or girl who successfully fills a place in the home of his childhood will be in a fair way to undertake successfully the greater task of founding a home of his or her own as a basis for all the rest. We must work for health, a truly successful life, rounded and full, presupposes health, regular habits, nourishing food, plenty of sleep, or axiomatic in writings treating of the care of young children. Yet it is surprising how often these rules are violated. It is easier to give the child what he wants or what the others are having, easier to let him sit up than to put him to bed, easier to regard the moment than the years ahead. Aside from the physical foundation, the training that we are to give our little children will probably be based upon our conception of what they need to make them good sons and daughters, good brothers and sisters, good friends, good husbands and wives, and good fathers and mothers. In other words, it is the social aspect of life that we have in mind, and our social ideals. Whatever the boy wants to be when he grows up, he is sure to have social relations with his kind, whether the girl marries or remains single. She cannot entirely escape these relations. Indeed they are thrust upon both boy and girl already. What then do they need to enable them to be successful in the human relations of living? We might enumerate here a long list of virtues that will help. But, since long lists shatter concentration, let us narrow them to four. One sympathy. Two self-control. Three unselfishness. Four industry. I do not mean to say that, with these four qualities only, a man will make a successful merchant or farmer, or that a woman will become a good housekeeper or a skillful teacher. But I do mean that in family relations these four qualities are worth more than intellectual attainments or any sort of manual skill. It is really astonishing to see how much these four will cover. We desire thrift what is thrift but self-control, tolerance what but sympathy that put yourself in his place, feeling, courtesy what but unselfishness. Let us, then, in the child's early years concentrate upon sympathy, self-control, and selfishness, and industry. You will doubtless remember Cabot's summary of the four requirements of man work, play, love, and worship. Suppose we could write on the wall of every nursery in the land, sympathy work self-control in play unselfishness love industry worship would not this writing on the wall be a fruitful reminder to the mothers. The period of early childhood is the one in which the home may act with least interference as the child's teacher. Later, whether she will or number the mother must share the work of training with the school, the church, and that indefinite influence we class vaguely as society. During these few early years, then, the mother must use her opportunity well. It will soon be gone. How shall she teach such abstract virtues as sympathy, and selfishness, self-control? Recognizing the fact that the little child acts nearly as his instinct and feelings prompt, she must make all training at this stage of his life take the form of developing the instincts. Probably the strongest of these at this time is imitation. Consequently most of the teaching must take advantage of the imitative instinct. The first care should be to surround the child with the qualities we desire him to possess. The mother who scolds, gives way to temper or is unwilling or unable to control her own emotions and acts can hope for a little self-control in her child. In the same way the father who kicks the dog or lashes his horse or is hard and cold in his dealings with his family may expect only that his child will begin life by imitating his undesirable qualities. This necessary supervision of the child's environment is a strong argument for direct oversight of little children by the mother. 
it is often difficult even for her to keep an ideal example before the child, and if she leaves it to hired caretakers, they seldom realize its necessity or are willing to take the pains she would herself. Especially is this true of the young and ignorant girls who are often seen in sole charge of little children. This first step being merely passive education, it is not enough. We must not only set an example, we must go farther and strive to get from the child acts or attitudes of mind based upon these examples. Let us take first the quality of sympathy, which is closely allied to a reflex imitation. It is difficult to say just when the child merely reflects the emotions of those about him and when he consciously thinks of others as having feelings like his own. This conscious thought island of course, the foundation of real sympathy, and it comes early in the child's life probably before the fourth year. Illustration, copyright by Underwood and Underwood stories that broaden the child's conception of the lives and feelings of others are of value in training for sympathy a little girl of three was greatly interested and pleased at the appearance of a roast chicken upon the family dinner table. She chattered about the birdie as she had done before on similar occasions, but when the carving knife was lifted over it, she astonished everyone by her terrified cry of, don't cut the birdie, hurt the birdie, no explanation or excuse satisfied her and it was finally necessary to remove the platter and have the carving done out of her sight. Most children are naturally sympathetic when they have experienced or can imagine the feelings of others. The cruelty of children is usually due to their absorption in their own feelings without a realization of the pain they inflict. Training for sympathy then must consist of enlargement of experience and cultivation of imagination. Some mothers do not talk enough with their children. They talk to them that island they reprimand or direct them but do not carry on conversations, as they might do greatly to the child's advantage. Telling stories is one of the most fruitful methods of training at this age. Even, this little pig went to market, has possibilities in the hands of a skillful mother. The bedtime story is a definite institution in many families. It deserves to be so in all. Beginning with the nursery rhymes, the stories will gradually broaden in theme, and if their dramatic possibilities are at all realized by the storyteller, The children will broaden in their conception of the lives and feelings of others. Sympathy will thus in most cases be a plant of natural and easy growth. Intercourse with other children and with the older members of the child's family will also furnish constant material for the thoughtful mother. The baby bumps its head, and the mother soothes it with gentle, loving words. It is more than likely that the three or four year old will express his sympathy also. Surely he will if the mother says, poor baby, see the great bump how it must hurt, or perhaps, big sister, is happy on her birthday, again, the three-year-old is likely to show happiness also, and the wise mother will help the child by a timely word to take the step from reflex imitation of happiness to true sympathy, nor must we overlook the occasions when someone in the nursery has been, naughty, and must be punished, poor Bobby, he is sad because he cannot play with us this morning, He feels the way you did when you were naughty and had to sit so still in your little chair. I am sorry for Bobby aren't you? We hope he will be good next time, don't we? Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. Kindergarten games afford the intercourse with other children necessary to the child's development. Teaching self-control is quite a different matter from the foregoing, and one which requires infinitely more work and patience. The first step island however, the same. If you would have sympathy, show sympathy. If you would have self-control in a child, control yourself. Remember the strength of the imitative instinct. Next, strive to obtain control in the young child in some small matter where control is easy. 
Any normal child will learn that control pays if you make it pay. Encourage the hungry child to stop crying while you prepare his food, but prepare it quickly, or he will begin to cry again to make you hurry. Mothers usually work hard to teach control of bodily functions, but often far less to obtain control of mental and moral conditions. Obedience, considered from time immemorial the chief virtue of childhood, is really only of value as it conduces to self-control in later life. The wise parent, therefore, while requiring obedience for the convenience of the family and the safety of the child, will lay far more stress upon teaching the child to control himself. The work must be done almost entirely by indirect methods during the early years. Offering artificial rewards and dealing out artificial punishments are the crudest forms of encouraging effort. The natural reward and the inevitable natural punishment are far better when they can be employed. Illustration Courtesy of the United Charities of Chicago A group of children at the Mary Crane Nursery, Chicago. Children acquire self-control by learning to help themselves. The child who overcomes his tendency to play before or during his dressing may be rewarded by some special morning privilege which will automatically regulate itself. In our family it is the joyful task of bringing in and distributing the morning mail. The child not dressed, on time, necessarily loses the privilege. We are not punishing, but, we can't wait. Lack of control of temper presupposes solitude. People can't have cross children about. Quarrels inevitably bring cessation of group play or work solitude again. The child's love of approbation may also be made of great assistance. Always we must remember that doing what we tell him to do is not after all the main thing. It is doing the right thing. Being willing to do the right thing. And being able to hold back the impulse to do the wrong thing. That count. We are working to train self-directed agents not to make soldiers, and selfishness is a plant of slow growth. Indeed it is properly not a childish trait at all, and the most we can probably get is its outward seeming, but it is important that we at least acquaint the child with ideals of unselfishness. We must find much in the child to appeal to, even though altruistic motives do not appear until much later than this. The love of approbation will prove a strong help again. Also the sense of justice with which children seem endowed from the beginning. Help him because he helped you, or give her some because she always gives you part of hers, is often effective. Just as in the case of self-control, the child will learn to overcome his innate selfishness if it pays to do so. It may seem wrong to encourage any but the highest motive, but the habit of unselfish acts, resting upon a desire to win the approbation of others, is a better foundation upon which to build than no foundation at all. Purely disinterested or altruistic motives do not appear in the normal child much before the age of adolescence, and by that time selfishness, which accords so well with the individualistic instincts of the child, will have hardened into a fixed habit if not vigorously checked. Care must be taken to lead the child toward in selfish acts, but not to force them upon him. The common courtesies of life we may require, but, beyond that, example, tactful suggestion, wisely chosen stories and judicious praise will do far more than force. The idea of kindness may be grasped by young children and, together with the great ideal of service, should be emphasized in their home life and in their intercourse with other children. The only child suffers most from lack of opportunity to learn these two great needs of his best self-kindness and service. Occasions should be systematically made for such a child indeed for all children to meet other children on some common ground. Playthings should be shared help given and received, and the idea of interdependence brought out, we must help each other, should be emphasized from early childhood, 
much must be made of the little helps the child is able to give in the home bringing slippers for father, going on little errands about the house for mother, picking up his own playthings, hanging up his coat and hat, caring for the welfare of the family pets. Careful provision should be made for the child's convenience in performing these little services. There must be places for the toys, low hooks for the wraps, and constant encouragement and recognition of the small helper. Someday he may help you because he loves to help. Now he loves to be praised for helping. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. Helping the little sister. Children will learn in selfishness and kindness if they are early taught to help one another. Activity is a natural and absorbing part of a child's life. He is always doing something. It remains for the parent to direct this restless movement and to transform some of it into full labor. Work. In the sense of accomplishing results for the satisfaction and benefit of the parent, is quite foreign to our plan for training the young child, but work for the child's own satisfaction and for the formation of the habit of industry must occupy our attention in large measure. The child's playthings should from his earliest days be chosen in recognition of his desire to do things and make things. The shops are filled with showy toys, mechanical and otherwise, and children find the toy shop a veritable fairyland. But once satiated with the sight of any particular toy, however cunningly devised and satiety comes soon the child forsakes the gorgeous plaything for his blocks, or paper and a pair of scissors, or even his mother's clothespins. He can do something with these. The Montessori materials are perhaps the most thoughtfully planned in this direction of anything now obtainable, and no one having the care of young children should be without some knowledge of this now famous method. All the materials had this advantage, they offer definite problems and consequently afford the child the joy of accomplishment. A few of the occupations of life afford us an ending enjoyment.